In the film, uh, The Shawshank Redemption, which uh, was out several years ago, um, there's a character named Red who's played by Morgan Freeman. And uh, Red is the primary narrator of the movie. He tells the story of Andrew Dufresne, who was a young, successful banker who was wrongly convicted of murdering his wife and then sentenced to two consecutive life terms at Shawshank Prison. About halfway through the film, uh, another character, Brooks Hadlin, uh, comes into the scene, and he becomes so enraged and that he that he threatens to take another inmate's life using a makeshift knife, holding it at his throat. Well, this stuns everybody because because Brooks was such a, a nice older man, and and everybody loved and respected him. And Red and Andy finally persuaded him to lay down his knife and ask him what he was doing. Well, it turned out that Brooks had just received word that he had received parole, and that he would be leaving Shawshank Prison. After 50 years, you see, the mere thought of freedom outside the walls was enough to send him over the edge. Later discussing it in the prison yard, an inmate concluded that Brooks had bugged out, gone mad, and Red quickly disagreed. Brooks ain't no bug. He's just institutionalized. The man's been in here 50 years, 50 years. This is all he knows. In here, he's an important man. He's an educated man. But outside, he's nothing but a used-up old con with arthritis in both hands. Probably couldn't even get a library card if he tried. You know what I'm saying? You believe whatever you want. But I'm telling you, these walls are funny. First you hate them, then you get used to them, and enough time passes, you get so you depend on them. You become institutionalized. In our scripture passages for today, we find some people who, in a very real sense have become institutionalized. They've been been imprisoned so long by sinful attitudes, habits, and beliefs. They've gone so long without freedom that when Jesus offers it to them, they're so enraged they want to kill him. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, again to John chapter 8, if you're not still there. There's Bibles in front of you in in the chair racks, beneath the chairs, the seats. John chapter 8. And we're going to work our way through this passage this morning. We'll begin now at, um, at verse 31. To the Jews who had believed him, so let's establish right up front, these are not those who were opposed to them. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. These words are often quoted, and they've been engraved in stone, and they've been framed and hung in courthouses all over the country and world. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Sounds good. Very inspiring. Who wouldn't love to hear something like that? But yet the very first people who heard these words of Jesus take issue with them. Verse 33, they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? In other words, they're saying, what in the world are you talking about, Jesus? We don't need freedom. We're already free. We have houses. We have jobs. We have families. We we have money. What are you talking about? We need to be set free. Now, it's an interesting reaction coming from the Jewish people. 
Because if you know anything about the history of the Jewish people, the Israelite people, then you know that in the past hundred, several hundred years, they had spent most of their time under a foreign thumb. Egyptians, Assyrians, Babylonians, and now during the life of Jesus Christ, the Romans are in control. They don't have national sovereignty. So I don't think that the Jews in this passage uh, are saying that they're free politically from Rome. It's not that kind of freedom they're, they're talking about. They weren't in denial about that. In fact, they wanted to be free from Rome, and that's part of the reason they responded so negatively to Jesus. They wanted a different kind of Messiah, one who would set them free and liberate them as a nation. But, of course, Jesus had a different kind of liberation, a different kind of freedom of mind, and that's why they didn't like it. Listen again to verse 33. We're descendants of Abraham and have never been in bondage to anyone. The real problem here, the real reason they react so strongly to Jesus' words is simply this, pride, spiritual self-sufficiency, an unwillingness, an unwillingness to acknowledge their need for salvation and help and freedom. In other words, we're descendants of Abraham. We're God's chosen people. We're special. We don't need to be set free spiritually. Pastor Ray Steadman writes about a time when he was traveling through Dallas, Texas, and he, and he, and he drove by um, uh, Texas Stadium where the Dallas Cowboys used to play before Jerry built Jerry's World. It's kind of a unique stadium, if you remember it, from years past. It had a big hole in the middle of the roof right over where the game was played. So, in a, so in basically the spectators were protected from the elements, but those who were playing in the game were exposed to the elements. When Sedman noticed this feature, he asked someone why it was designed this way, and he was told, so God can watch his favorite team. And that's the way many Cowboys fans feel about the team, if you know any. We're not only America's favorite team, we are God's favorite team. And that's sort of what these Jews, in a sense, felt. We're God's favorite team. We're God's favorite nation. We're God's favorite people, his chosen race. And, and they were right. The Old Testament tells us in several cases, several places, that God chose this small, insignificant people out of all the people and nations of the world. He chose them to be his special people, to be a light to all people, to the Gentiles and to everyone. And so they were God's chosen people. And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, 2 Peter 1.9 says that all who follow Jesus Christ are God's chosen people, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. We're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. And that's amazing. That's incredible to think about. We should be excited by that. That's our identity. But the problem with, with the Jews in this passage was they began to believe that they were acceptable to God because of their spiritual heritage. And we are never, ever accepted by God because of who our ancestors were. We are never accepted by God because of our pedigree, our position, our power, or our popularity. We are accepted by God because of our faith in Jesus Christ and faith in Christ alone. Jesus goes on in verse 34. I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, we often think of sin as bad thoughts, bad actions, bad words. And to a certain degree, that's true, I guess. But the problem is, is that there's going to be disagreement among people about what constitutes bad. A simpler definition of sin is doing something that God hates. If you go through confirmation class, you learn the, 
the, the answer is sin is everything in word and in deed and in thought that is contrary to the will of God. And God has told us throughout his word that he hates lying, he hates cheating, he hates anger, envy, he hates stealing, lust, pride, selfishness, laziness. And so Jesus is saying that anyone who does these things is a slave to sin. I mean, who here has ever cheated or lied, misrepresented themselves? Who here has ever gotten wrong, angry for the wrong reasons or been envious, taken something that didn't belong to them, been lustful, proud, selfish? The Bible says that because we're fallen human beings, that we can become enslaved by sin. Think of it this way. Another definition of sin is that sin is anything that keeps us from becoming the person that God has created us to be. Conversely, a good definition of true freedom is true freedom as being able to be all that God has created us to be. There's a book called Teaching the Elephant to Dance. And the author James Blasco describes how trainers shackle young elephants with these heavy chains that are tied to deeply embedded stakes driven deep into the ground. And the point, of course, is that way the young elephants learn how to stay in their places. Even when they're older and, and more powerful and they could easily pull up those stakes with no problem whatsoever and walk away, they still follow the conditioning that they learned as young elephants. The conditioning patterns have limited their movements. Even in some cases, when they don't tie them to the stake, they just put the, the bracket or the bracelet around their, their ankle. They still stay in place even though they could easily just walk away. You know, that's how sin works. It conditions us to walk around in the same old ruts, the same old patterns, the same destructive, same self-destructive issues. And it limits our movement and it squelches our growth and it keeps us from becoming the person that God has created us to be. You know, elephants are the most powerful land animal. They can pull up trees, they can crush a lion. And yet when conditioned by trainers, they are content to exist as a pathetic shadow of what they could be. You know, for far too many of us, we have similar existence. You know, the Holy Spirit gives us the power to do amazing, incredible things in this world for God. Christ said of his followers that they would do even greater things than he did when he walked on this earth. We have the power of God available to us, within us. And of all people, those who claim the name of Jesus Christ should be the most free. And yet when we allow sin to master us, we begin to get stuck in patterns and ruts, ways of thinking and living that keep us confined, confined to a small circle of influence. It keeps us from becoming the person God has created us to be. Now you'll notice in chapter 8, in the passage that was read, but also in the verses before that, that Jesus has a certain theme that he keeps going back to time and time again. He keeps using the word Father, capital F, referring to God, of course. The word Father, nine different times in, these, in this passage. And the reason he's doing that is because, in a sense, Jesus and the Jews are having an ongoing debate over who their father is and who his father is. Why is Jesus emphasizing God as Father so much here? What's his connection with the issue of freedom and slavery? Look at verses 35 and 36. 
Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son, capital S, denoting Jesus as the son of God, if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. So in other words, Jesus Christ, the son of God, came so that we would have a a different kind of relationship with God the Father. The Jewish people related to God the Father because of their their relationship through uh, as descendants of Abraham. But Jesus came so that instead of being slaves to sin without a permanent place in God's family, we could instead be children, sons and daughters of God, belonging to God's family forever. Children set free to become all that God has created us to be. And that freedom, Jesus says, comes only through knowing the truth. And Jesus said he is the way, the truth, and the life. Freedom comes only through faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Sadly, many of the Jewish people had been relating to God through their spiritual heritage. And they left it there. And that became the basis of their righteousness. Here's how their logic kind of worked. Abraham had been the child of God. We're Abraham's children, therefore we're children of God. And people today fall into the same trap as well sometimes. Their parents or their grandparents, their aunts or uncles were people of faith. And so they just assume too that they have the same privileges and relationships that the older generation had sort of a a vicarious faith. But the Bible is very clear that we must have our own faith, our own experience with God. uh, Jesus insists upon this in John 3 where he says, you must be born again if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven. We cannot live our lives spiritually through somebody else. Now, how many of us know what it's like to struggle with a, a nagging habit? It can be extremely difficult sometimes to change our lives, to try to lose weight or stop smoking or stop swearing or stop lying or, or whatever, or, or stop looking at certain things or, or to be more patient or whatever. There's all sorts of things that drag us down and hold us. And Jesus tells us the only way that we can be set free from those things is acknowledging our need for him and putting our trust in him and asking him to be our strength and to, re- and to release us from the things that hold us. So the Jewish people in this passage are very angry with Jesus, but he does one more thing that makes them even more angry. Look at verse 43 and 44. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you're unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. Jesus sure knew how to make friends and influence people, didn't he? There was a short little um, snippet I saw, like in a magazine a while back with, about a man who experienced uh, false advertising. He um, uh, went to, to a dry cleaning store that said one-hour dry cleaners. And he, he dropped off his suit and gave uh, them the money, and, and uh, he told the clerk, I'll be back in an hour for my suit. She said, I can't get this back to you until Thursday. He said, I thought you did dry clean in an hour. She said, no, that's just the name of the store. You know, the point is, a store can name itself one-hour dry cleaners all at once, but it's, if it takes three days to get a suit back, it's a fraud. Its name doesn't match its identity. Jesus is saying the same thing in this passage. He says, You say you're children of Abraham, but if you were children of Abraham, you would have welcomed me with arms open wide. If you're children of God, you would love me and accept my teaching. What you do reveals to whom you belong. 
All your proud claims of spiritual heritage are worthless if your hearts are filled with murder and lust and envy and jealousy and hate and, and sin. You are not God's children, he says. You come from another force, another source. And then Jesus drives home his point in verse 47. He who belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. If you hold to my teaching, he says, you are really my disciples. And this is where freedom begins to happen. You see, there's a direct connection between knowing freedom in Christ and your level of obedience. A little bit of obedience, a little bit of freedom. A lot of obedience, a lot of freedom. Freedom, Jesus says, comes from hearing and obeying my words. When we hear the truth about our need for a Savior and respond, we're set free from death and receive eternal life. When we hear the truth about our responsibilities to others, when we hear about the reconciliation and forgiveness made possible through the cross, we're set free to serve people, not to use them. When we hear the truth about God's plans and purposes for our lives, we're set free to become all that he's created us to be. When we hear the truth about the power unleashed on the cross, we can be set free from self-destructive patterns and actions and, and thoughts and addictions. And when we hear the truth about who God the Father is and how much he loves us, we are set free to live by grace and not by fear. But for some people, the thought of freedom that Jesus is offering can be frightening, just like the Jewish people and just like Brooks in the Shawshank Redemption. We can become so familiar, so comfortable with our lives, with our sin, with our ways of doing things without God, that we become institutionalized. We fight the very freedom that God offers us that God has designed for us to enjoy. Friends, listen to Jesus' words. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. And then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. We thank you for uh, the power that we can have when we, when we put our trust in him, when we listen to him, when we hear him, and when we obey him. God, I pray for each one of us that we would increasingly step outside the limitations that sin has placed upon our life, that we would choose to live out uh, the freedom you've given us, that you would help us through your Spirit's power to become the people you've created us to be. Lord, we, uh, we thank you and we we uh, thank you that you are the Son of God. You are our Savior, through whom we pray. Amen. This morning in the last part of the service, we have uh, the privilege and, and, and uh, exciting opportunity to witness the, the baptism of several individuals. Um, baptism uh, in the Scripture is, is, uh, is, is ordered by God, commanded by God, not as a, an addition to salvation, but as a way for us to express to God our love for Jesus Christ, sort of an outward expression of an inward change and transformation in our lives. So I'd like to read to you a passage of Scripture uh, where Paul talks about baptism and the symbolism regarding it out of Romans chapter 6. 
What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We die to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old life was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. The symbolism of baptism, if you, what Paul is talking about, is that when a person comes into the water and they, they go into the water, they're identifying their life with Jesus Christ and his death and burial. As they come out of the water, the symbolism is that they're, they're also identifying their life with Jesus' resurrection. And it symbolizes the new life and, and eternal life and the forgiveness and the cleansing that all receive when they put their faith in Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask Pastor David to come out and take his place in the water, and uh, I would like to play, pray for those who are being baptized. Father, we thank you for um, these individuals who have put their trust in Jesus Christ. They've seen their need for you. They know that they fall short that they have sinned. And, and yet, Lord, they know that you do not leave them in that place, but that because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross for them and their faith in Jesus, that they are cleansed, that they can know freedom, that they can, they can live for you. They don't have to be slaves to sin. They can live for you as they die to themselves as you live within them, Lord. Father, I pray that they would know your blessing, uh, that you would pour your spirit upon them as they are being baptized this morning that their hearts would be filled with joy and that they would hear and know in their heart and spirit that they are your children, that you loved, with whom you are well pleased. We ask this through Christ, O Lord. Amen.